Praise be to God. As we are on week three, if you're not used to hearing from Paul, then buckle up, because he doesn't hold back. He dives in, making this argument. It's interesting, uh, J.D. Greer wrote a new book on this, Romans, and and he, he mentioned that Harvard had their law students read Romans up until about 20 years ago to learn how to construct an argument. And Paul spends the majority as he shifts from those who don't know God and live without God, now he's turning his focus to those who claim to know God, to those who claim to have an understanding, those who are religious. It was asked of Francis Schaeffer how he would spend his time, what he would talk about to try and persuade someone to come to know Jesus if they had, if he only had an hour, so 60 minutes. He said, I'd spend the first 50 minutes trying to convince them, trying to persuade them that they were lost. I was thinking, thinking about that because physically, when someone's lost, as a kid, they give you a whistle and you learn about, okay, stay put, blow your whistle, and, and now they have you know, you get a new phone and you can connect to satellite when you're lost. Like everyone's consumed with this fear of being lost. I was backpacking a couple summers ago. We ran this lady and she was in tears and I'm like, you have a satellite phone. Like you're fine. They, everyone knows you can just call on your set. But this, this terror of being lost and, and physically just incapable of getting from point A to point B. But yet spiritually, we're totally fine with being lost. And, and we have this, this idea, which Paul has to spend so much time in, in almost being abusive of, of just beating a dead horse where he just keeps pounding it. And even chapter three, he does this, this string of pearls in the Hebrew is, and, he, and he brings point after point after point, six statements pointing to how much of a loser we all are and just how lost we all are. It's like, I get it, Paul. You just, can we talk about something fun now and good? Because this is depressing. In Romans 2, he, he focuses on this thought, mankind does not accept God's assessment of human sin and the imperative of divine judgment. You've heard it before, and maybe you've thought it, or maybe you've said it. No one is perfect. Nobody's perfect. When, when sin becomes apparent or clear, or you've sinned, you realize it's, it's either the gravity and the weight of sin, or you have to excuse it or somehow justify it. And... And talking about this and thinking, it's like, well, I'm, as Paul says, I'm one of the biggest sinners because as I look at the law, as the law reveals the sin in me, I'm fully made aware. And the longer I look in the mirror of the law, and the more I see scripture, the more it points out even a desire to do good is sin if I'm not doing it from a pure heart. And we'll get into that in a minute, but we, we've heard these statements come out of our heart where it's like, well, I'm, I'm good. I haven't killed anybody, right? We're grading on a curve. Like, I'm, I'm actually doing pretty good. I haven't run into anybody. I mean, I've cut people off and maybe my fingers come up or words have come out that I don't want to repeat, but I'm, I'm doing pretty good. You have these lesser sins, envy, arrogance, and we're hiding it, right? It's the, the morally acceptable sins, as kids, we were taught this language early on. When your friends wanted to go to a movie or you wanted to go do something and you knew your parents probably weren't going to support or pay for it, 
And so you're like, oh, do I tell them the truth? Do I tell them we're going to see a different movie? And then maybe it slips out and you're like, oh, that was a bad play. I should have lied. And well, now I'm telling it, but everyone's doing it. Everyone's going to this movie. It's fine. That's the language of a child. And then as you grow older, you, you soften it a little bit to nobody's perfect. Or maybe you, you've, you've thought long and hard and you're more of a philosopher in mind. And so maybe you've come to what this famous philosopher said, saying, God will forgive. It's his trade. Where, where Paul points out, do you suppose, O oh man, in verse 3 of chapter 2, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? You don't think it's that severe? Verse 4, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance, which means his patience, where he's forbearing, he's waiting, he's not judging you immediately for everything you think, say, or do against him, He's patient, not knowing that his kindness, God's kindness, it's meant to lead you to repentance. His kindness is meant to be that mirror that you look at and realize, wow, I am that big of a mess up. I am that broken. I am really not okay. And I can't do anything to change it. So what am I left to do? Should be the question that we're asking. The problem is twofold. First, we don't understand God's holiness We don't think he's that good. And secondly, we don't understand how bad we are. We don't think we're that bad. So we see the religion comes in. Satan always comes after God's word. He's not that smart. He's the created. God's the creator. Satan comes later and twists God's word. Satan doesn't attack Eve's image. Hey, Eve, looks like you're eating too many burgers. You should try this, you know. He doesn't say that. He says, hey, what did God say? Let's twist that. Let's twist God's word. Why is it that we have all these religions twisting God's word, saying you can do this, you can't do this? And maybe you've grown up. Maybe you've gone to church and you've been taught religion. And and every time you hear sin, it's this like, oh, this weight, this girl, why are we talking about this again? Why is Paul hammering this again? Because it's the religion that's been said every religion exists was created in the mind of demons and came from Satan because he wants you distracted. He wants you under the weight and the burden of religion because religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. I obey, therefore I've amazed God and I've shocked him and he's amazing at how smart I am and this intellect and how far I've gotten in my career as a lawyer or a the business degree, and I run this business, and I have all these employees. Look at how good I am at, at, at this. Or look at man, a couple more moves, and I'll make some money. And look at how wonderful I am, and I'm doing these good things. And by the way, I haven't killed anyone today. So we're good. Like, I'm good. God's impressed with me and my record. Because morally, this is what the culture is saying is good. Therefore, I'm accepted. But the problem is, especially it's highlighted with, with Islam, also other religions are views, you do good to the universe, the universe will do good to you, or you do good and therefore you get back. But Allah is terrifying. If you submit to Allah as a a Muslim, he could be having a bad day. This is what they believe, their doctrine. And on that bad day, you meet him, he could say, sorry, everything was good, you were really good, but I'm having a bad day, you don't get to go to heaven today. Which is terrifying that you would submit to that thought, that belief, that you're interned Eternal destiny rests on whether he's having a good day or a bad day, even if you did everything. But the gospel says, 
you're accepted in Jesus. Now you have God's spirit in you, so you can obey. The gospel is you're already accepted. The, the promise is that God will forgive you. The warning is that judgment's coming for everyone, and Satan wants you under the weight of religion, trying to earn his approval, trying to earn his acceptance, because God's already accepted you. So he, he can't let you see the truth. He can't let you delight in God's word. Satan wasn't like, hey Eve, look at everything that God gave you. Isn't it all wonderful? Oh, by the way. He didn't do that. He said, hey, by the way, look at this one thing. Don't touch it. He's adding to God's word. He's tweaking it. Paul grew up a religious Jew. In fact, he was the most extreme of religious Jews possible, and he kept receipts to prove it. It's what young people say now. He basically had the, the Rolodex. The, the, he kept the evidence, right, on file to show, hey, I have all of the, not just achievement awards, first place trophies, but I actually have the names of those I've been a part of killing that were coming against the Jewish religion that we made it to be. Instead of being God's people, showing people God's love and how they could be accepted, we, we made this religion about it based on works. And so he realized his works were so disgusting because they were so full of self-righteousness and puffing him up with pride, he regarded to them as, as feces, as dung in Philippians 3. And now this part of Romans, he's writing to those who grew up in the religious circles like he did, trying to be as good as he was. But he looked in the mirror of the law and realized all of my achievements, all of my scripture memorization, hearing the word, and then he says in verse 13, for it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's the ones who do the works of the law. And all the things he thought he was doing, even that, he was doing it for himself. So even in that, he was sinning. So looking in the mirror of the law, he realizes he was lost, we are lost, so there's no hope apart from Jesus, is his point. So we see these three points, the critical moralizers. They're very critical of others, and they have these hidden sins, and they're very public about how moral they are, which is Romans 2, 1 through 16, and then we get to the heart of matter, Romans 2, 17 through chapter 3, verse 8, and then lastly, we see the question he's posing, what advantage is your religion? Romans 3, 9 through 20. As we see through Romans, he's unpacking and supporting and putting forth this argument of the gospel. We all need the gospel. We're judged by the gospel, whether we receive it or reject it. We teach that if you want to share the gospel, it's four parts. It starts with God, not Romans 23, 23, that you're a sinner because where'd you come from? God created you. God's the creator. One God and three persons. We sinned, separated us from God. Jesus is the one who paid the price for you and I. And do we respond? Do we receive it or reject it? So in, in a full pregnant sentence, we could say out of those four parts, God the creator, by grace, not something we did to earn or deserve it, but by God's grace, sent his son, Jesus, into the world. He lived a perfect life, free from sin, died for sinners, rose from the dead, and now offers all who believe eternal life and a special place in his kingdom, living life to the fullest with the power of the Holy Spirit. He saved us from the punishment of sin for the place in his kingdom, empowered by his spirit. We've already been accepted as believers so we can obey 
by the power of his spirit. So he says, look, to the critical moralizers, verses 1 through 16 of chapter 2, he started the chapter by saying, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge someone, you're condemning yourself. Because you do the same thing. The only thing that makes sense about that is if you go back to chapter 1, and you see he's been pointing the finger at the irreligious, saying, look at these worshipers bowing down to figures of wood and stone and, and metal, and they have all these sensualities they've given over to, to sex fantasies and orgies, and, and it's all been in, in Corinth and in Romans. And all of a sudden, Paul turns to the religious people who go to the synagogue every Sunday and says, hey, you're just like them. You do the same thing. Paul's speaking to the people who essentially represent anyone who's religious or anyone who's tried not to be living without God, but tried religion, tried to read the law, look at themselves in the mirror and, and try and fix things. He says, hey, you people out there, you people of lives who've been trying to obey the Bible, you've been relying on your own obedience to impress God, your obedience to the law, you're feeling pretty good about it, but Paul says... No, you're actually just the same as those who live apart from the law. If you go down, you see in verse 21 and 22, he says, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say to the people, you should not commit adultery, but you are committing adultery. At that point, we see the reason he's saying this is because he's saying, you're condemning yourself. Publicly, you're saying, you don't commit adultery, but a lot of you do commit adultery. So there's this thing that happens in any kind of church or religious place is, is hypocrisy. You show up and you've you got to act a certain way and talk a certain way and look a certain way, but really inside, there's all the same stuff that we all deal with and we're all tempted by. And, and so if we're not honest in a life group or a Bible study and say, hey, I'm, I'm struggling with this sin. I, I need help in this fight. We're supposed to confess our sins to one another and pray for each other because we're all in sin. And so Paul's making this argument that you religious people, Bible-believing, Bible-obeying, you look at all these awful pagans who are irreligious, but you're the same. You're equally separated from God. He's talking to the Jewish Christian believers who earlier in the, in the chapter before are pointing to them saying, oh man, those horrible sinners and Paul's saying, but you're a sinner too. So he hints at it in verse 5, because when he says, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, this is something you could really never see in just the English translation, but the two Greek words that are combined here in the Greek translation of the Old Testament were associated with idolaters. So this hardness of heart, he's really saying, but you're idolaters just like those who are bowing down to idols. He's saying, it's not that... You have idols in your hands or a statue in your front yard, but yeah, you might say with your mouth you're, you're holding to the Ten Commandments, and it looks like you are, but in your heart you have idols. You abhor idols physically, but spiritually in your heart you've made an idol about your obedience. You're so puffed up and you have your church attendance. It was shocking when I started as a lead pastor here, and, and people come up to me and say, hey pastor, I, I'm not going to be here this Sunday. And it wasn't like they're an elder reading scripture. They were just attending. And I'm like, it's, it's okay, God, it's, it's all right. Like, no, is it, are you sure? Like, do I, need to, do I need to come an extra hour early to make up for my absence? I'm like, no, it's fine. You don't, 
You don't need a pastor's note to miss church. Like, you're good. It's not, it's, we'll miss you. We're a family. So when you're here, you don't give us your gift and you don't receive my gift. So it's a bummer. But at least we record it for you. So there's some encouragement hopefully you can receive later. But you don't have to, you know, it's not religion. And it, that, it was that same, like, ew, gross. You're religious. You've, you think attending church is something that's going to impress God or somehow it's going to change your week. It will because of the Holy Spirit in you, but it's not because of your ability to attend a building. It's your, you're missing the community of God's people. So, he's, so Paul's saying, look, you're, you're trying to show off to everybody, but really in your heart, are you worshiping your health? Are you worshiping your wealth and, and making it about that comfort or your, your status? Or are you using your status, your, your marriage or your employment or your, the fact that you employ people? Are you using that to bless people? Or using it to lord over people. And that's the problem. Is they're like, oh, those people. Gross. Paul's like, well, you're just the same. By that same standard. If you look in your heart. And we see this unifying theme of all of scripture come up again. As Paul's making this argument. When we're critically moralizers. We're critical of others. Hiding behind our own hypocrisy. As religious people. Not gospel people. The gospel, the good news of the gospel is we've already been accepted, therefore we can obey in Christ. We see the unifying theme of the Bible and the uniqueness of the gospel in point two, which is the heart of the matter. He's going from, okay, this is what you're saying, but really Jew and Gentile both are lost. Let's look at the heart of the matter in this unifying theme of scripture. A few months ago when we were finishing Luke, we stayed in Luke 15 for a couple weeks. It's Jesus' parable of the prodigal son which is really the prodigal God, the God who has a son, the younger son, the younger brother, who loves money, parties, sex, prostitutes, takes the father's money, takes his inheritance, squanders it, just completely lives materialistically for the moment, and he's disobedient to the father, brings dishonor and shame because the whole town would have known the disrespect the younger son would have had for the father, taking his inheritance and the older brother is very obedient, very religious, stays at home, does the father's work, takes care of the goats, takes care of the cars, takes care of the cows. Everything's to the T taken care of. And yet, the point of the parable comes when the younger brother is received and celebrated for coming home and the older is outside, bitter, angry. Both were lost. But one came home and was celebrated. The other one refused to be accepted and to be loved by the father. The, the older refused because the older was religious and delighted in his obedience. Even though in his heart he was worshiping his obedience. Which is so terrifying because I have so many older brother tendencies to look at the good that I've been able to enjoy of obeying God and realizing that in and of itself I can worship instead of the God who, who his spirit in me has empowered me and gifted me to serve. So he says, you older brothers, you people are trying so hard to be good. You think God owes you. You think the universe is going to repay you good. However you want to define that, it's not God. Because there's one God who created and by grace gave his son. That's the God who said, I accept you. I love you. I, my promise is I forgive you if you believe. But the God that we invent, the God that Satan puts in front of us all the time, that he hides behind is the religion that out of our obedience we earn, or out of our obedience we impress. 
And Paul's saying that is a false god. That's an idol. And you're every bit in need of salvation as the irreligious. Isn't that amazing? The, the, the same thing, the unifying theme in all of Scripture is that God created, sent His Son to save, and His people continue to reject, rebel, worship idols. Paul is saying exactly the same thing here that Jesus was saying in Luke 15. It's the unifying theme of Scripture and the uniqueness of the Gospel here. Paul is saying, you good people are condemned. You bad people are condemned. You're all lost. So the uniqueness of the Gospel is it's inclusively exclusive. It's saying you're all included in this offer, but it's exclusive to those who receive it. The good news of the Gospel is is inclusive. It's, it's for everyone. But it only applies to those who answer the call. It excludes those who let the call ring and go to voicemail. The call goes out. But it only applies to those who answer it. In 1970s, there was this bestseller some of you may have heard of. It's called I'm Okay, You're Okay. It was a self-help book. Which I didn't know self-help was around that long. I thought it was a new thing. But so apparently there's been a lot of people that have been helping themselves for a long time, but we haven't gotten any better. We've gotten worse. So if there's any evidence that Paul's argument here still holds weight, in the 70s there was this book and it was so narcissistic, this author came out and, and said, and, and deconstructed it and said, how in the world can you say that this is a mentally healthy thing to say, this self-help statement? I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. And yet there's... Just the blood of the innocent continue to be spilt. There's wars, there's terrorism, there's these awful things of sex trafficking and, and prostitution and pornography and genocide. All these things are happening. We're not okay. The world's not okay. And everyone's just saying it's okay. So she said, no, it's not. I'm not okay. You're not okay. So she came back with another book that said, hey, with all this injustice and everything... How can we say that everyone's okay? In the 70s, there's a minister, a Bible teacher, who used this illustration, John Gerstner, when he was telling, he said, look, this book came out, I'm okay, you're okay. He says, how does that compare to the message of the Bible? He says, I was on a trip with my wife and my grandson, and we're in a boat, and we're going, and the, and the driver of the boat runs into another boat, and water splashes into the boat. And if you've ever been in a boat in another country, it's not that uncommon. You know, they're just zipping up and down rivers and there's water in the boats. It's fine. I've been in many of boats like that. And you don't think anything of it. There's just water in the boat. So he looks at the driver and the driver is very stern and can't speak much English. And he's like, hey, we're, I'm okay. You're okay. Like there's water. In the, we're okay. Just calm down. And the, the driver seemed really agitated and kept going. And then a few minutes later, he's like, dude, this driver's really like arrogant or just bummed that we crashed. Like it's Okay. You gotta calm him down because he's gotta drive us. So he tells him, Hey, I'm okay. You're okay. We'll get the water out later. And the driver just seemed very stern. And they got close to the dock. And he said, Hey, don't worry. And they got almost to the dock. And he said, We're okay. And the man looked up at him and said, You, not okay. I, not okay. And he, as they got to the dock, he pushed them up to the dock, grabbed his grandson, threw him onto the dock, leapt out of the boat as the boat sank. And then it pops up a few feet later, upside down, revealing the hole that had occurred in the hole of the boat. And the driver knew that they were taking on water, and he knew that he wasn't okay, and he knew everyone in the boat was not okay, and he had to get them to safety. He just didn't have the words to say. 
And Gerstner said, I realize that's the message of Scripture. I'm not okay, and you're not okay. Paul's trying to get us to understand that the irreligious are not okay, and the religious are not okay. It's not upon our lack of good works or our good works. We're all going to be judged. We're all going to be judged. It says in verse 16, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Everything you say, everything you think and do, he's recording and he's going to put it on replay for you. Isn't that exciting? Everything. It's wonderful. Thanks, Paul. Appreciate that reminder. Awesome. When we look at the law, the, the warning is terrifying. You're going to be judged based on a perfect Savior. That's the standard. And it's not lowered. It's not a curve. But the promise that Paul's saying is you've been forgiven in Jesus. You can delight in that judgment knowing he's forgiven you from everything you've said, everything you've thought, everything you've done. You're going to say, think, or do today and in the future. He's going to take care of all of it. Somehow, by his grace, we need the one true God, the creator God, to do that for us. And he's saying that's the point. It's not moralism saying, I'm okay, and you're no way okay. It's not narcissism saying, I'm okay, you're okay, everyone's okay. Not when there's injustice in the world and dysfunctionality. It's not masochism saying, I'm not okay, and everybody else is. What the scripture is saying is we're all sinners. We're all not okay. We're all lost. And Jesus has come to convince us, to convict us, to say, you're lost, but I've come to find you and save you and bring you home. God, the creator, by grace, sent his son Jesus into the world. He lived a perfect life, free from sin and death. Died for sinners, rose from the dead, and now offers all who believe eternal life and a special place in his kingdom, living life to the fullest with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of heart, Jesus says, the law of God is trying to get after. He goes through all this to try and get us to see. It's our heart. When he preached the Sermon on the Mount, what is he saying? He says, you should be so honest, you don't ever have to swear an oath. He says, your yes should be a yes and no should be a no. Every interaction should be... Ago, there was an English professor who gave her students in a university uh, an assignment to read the Sermon on the Mount. And they all came back furious and angry. And they said, I hated this. I don't like the Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel I had to be perfect. Someone said, this is absolutely ridiculous. No one can be like this. No one can be perfect. And she said, that's okay. And listened to him for a while and then asked the question, but aren't these the kind of people you want as friends? Aren't these the kind of people you want as your family that are generous to you, loving to you, kind to you, only repaying evil with good and quickly to forgive? In other words, they're saying, I'm very angry if you were to hold me to this standard, but on the other hand, actually, I hold everyone else to the same standard. We see that as we look at the law and the New Testament proclaims, that there's a time in the future where we're going to be judged. The, the reflection we see now and we're aware of, and as we read scripture, we become more aware of it. And as what led Martin Luther to the gospel is realizing there's things that he doesn't think are sins that God's going to call sins and he's going to be held accountable for that. 
And when that day comes, the warning is that judgment's coming, the promise is that those can, who believe in Jesus are forgiven and saved and have His Spirit empowering us, healing us, allowing us to love and serve others as we've been loved and served by God. And that Christ sees us in that terrifyingly clear way, but yet loves us. And that's the love that draws us. That's the kindness that's meant to draw us to him and be saved. So what advantage is our religion as we wrap up with his last point? The advantage is, verse 9, Paul says, what shall we conclude? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jew and Gentiles alike are under sin. And the force of the language leaves no doubt what he means. It's not sin, it's sins. It means the dynamic of sin. Under means that under the power dominion of it. We're, we're dead in our sins unless Jesus saves us and brings us back to life and gives us his life in him. The statement following verse is the most explicit description of the total depravity of mankind in all scripture. This does not mean man is depraved as he could be, but there's always room for de-provement. He can continue to lower and lower and lower. And we see this as, as he makes this, what's in Hebrew called charaz, literally a string of pearls, where he strings these pearly statements from the Old Testament. Six, to be exact, Old Testament, which is 14 statements, as he brings about the character in verse 10, there is no one righteous, not even one. Paul's really honest. If you ever want a friend that just level with you, it's Paul. Whenever you read scripture, there's, he leaves nothing to any kind of wondering. He says, no, there's no one righteous, no, not one. Verse 11, no one understands, no one seeks after God. No one understands. There's no depth of attributing to God. Sin makes it impossible. No matter what level of spiritual life someone could reach to, there's no way they could see God. They're still selfish. No one seeks after God. By nature, no one wants to know God. No one's seeking Him out unless the Holy Spirit does a work on our heart and removes it from a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. Because in verse 12, he says, all have turned away. They've together become worthless. Anything we do is selfish, self-seeking, self-soothing. They cannot fill their purpose as the created from the creator to represent his image and love one another. When you see the triune God with God the Father in creation, God the Son speaking things, the Word, and God the Spirit over the water in this dance of them all having a hand in it, it's that unity we read about in John 17 that we would hopefully accomplish all through the New Testament. Vision of the church is the church is unified. Different backgrounds, different sins, but all one in Christ because Christ is undoing that sin in our lives. It's not for me to undo the sin in your life. It's for me to point you to Jesus and say, he'll do it. He'll take care of it. He already did it. He forgave you. There's no one who does good, not even one. The good I do, it's really self-seeking, self-applause of men. It's not unless God changes my heart. Their throats are open graves. This, this image he paints is just so destructive. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness in 13 and 14. And finally, he concludes in 15 and 17, sounds like a condensed history of the world as we read the verses we are reminded of the activity as our feet as men frequently run away from God to death and destruction. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. It's crazy when you think about how depraved we are in our quick rush to violence. Will Durant wrote in his lesson from history, he said in the last 3,421 years when this was penned of recorded history, only 268 have seen no war. During World War II, it was estimated that it took $225,000 to take one enemy soldier's life. $225,000. I wonder how much is being spent today all over the world in all these proxy wars and rumors of wars. We love violence as men. We're not okay. I'm not okay. You're not okay. The only way we are going to be forgiven and receive that promise is if we turn to Jesus. That's the hope of the gospel. Paul's pleading. Paul's begging. He was the most religious of the religious and saying, my obedience is nothing. I have to come under Jesus. I have to believe in Jesus and be saved. The final pearl in that cheraz, that string of pearls in verse 18, there is no fear of God. That reverential trust where you're reverent of the power and the, and the holy and, and wonder of God. No fear of God before their eyes. First the character, then the conduct, and now the cause. The fear of God is left out of their thinking. So our advantage is we see Jesus. We see in Revelation 3.17, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But God says, you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. We need, as Revelation 3.18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. He's saying, in me, you need to understand your horrible condition, but don't stay that way. I love you enough to, to save you and accept you. And in me, you can be forgiven. So stop trying to earn it and stop trying to avoid it because the judgment's inevitable. That's the warning. The promise is we are forgiven in Christ. A verse you probably just skimmed over, but I want to conclude with is verse 26 of chapter 2. If a man who is uncircumcised keeps his precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And then verse 31 of chapter 3, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. The law is still the standard that we must be right. And the only way to be right is if we're in Jesus. Colossians 2, 11 through 12, which I'm sure many of you are like, he's going to Colossians, I know it. No, I, deep in study, it's like, how many times have I read Colossians and missed this verse? Paul's so brilliant. Peter even says, I don't understand how he does this, but he's just, he just knows so much. Like I said, he kept the receipts. He has all of the connections for us to delight in the gospel, that the God of grace would love us this much. Colossians 2.11 says in 12, Paul's talking about the cross. He's talking about Jesus dying on the cross, and he says, in him you were also circumcised. He's talking to Gentiles, by the way, who weren't literally physically circumcised. He says, in him you were also circumcised, not with a circumcision done by hands of men, but with a circumcision done by Christ. He brings up circumcision because in order for Abraham to have a relationship with God, there had to be a covenant. And in, in, in the Old Testament times, you would have a covenant, you'd make a promise, and we don't do that anymore because I'll tell you why. 
you'd, you'd grab dirt and you'd put it on your head and you'd say, look, if I break this covenant, may I be as the dust that's covered me. Or you'd make a covenant like God made with Abraham where you'd cut the animals in half and have the blood flow. And in that covenant, you'd say, okay, I'm gonna, you're going to be my God and I'm going to be your man. I'm going to obey you and walk with you and, and I'm going to walk through this blood. And if I break the covenant, then may it be to me as these animals were. May I be cut in two and blood flow through. So this is where Paul's trying to get us to see we need Jesus. We can't have a relationship with God unless there's a covenant. We, we as, as Moses, as Aaron, as Jacob, no one was able to keep the covenant but Jesus. And so as he comes and gathers his disciples, it's not the best of the best. These were the ones that didn't have the receipts. They didn't have the opportunity to study under another rabbi. That's why Jesus was able to pull them off the fishing boats and out of the tax booth. These were the not good enough, the not smart enough. And from all walks of life, he said, okay, you're all called to go. So at the end, the two opportunities is there's a warning. Are you going to be judged? And you don't know it yet. The promise is those that know they're going to be judged. Are we delighting that we've been forgiven? And if we've been forgiven, we're forgiven for the service of Christ. To lead a life group, to host a life group, lead a Bible study, serve in kids or youth ministry. All the different functions we have at church and ministries serve one purpose. To call the irreligious and the religious to Christ and say, stop. It's not your works and it's not your lack of works. It's God's grace. Come and be saved. But it's a call for all of us. Not just me or the elder, it's a call for you and me because I'm not good and you're not good. But in Christ, we're good. And now we can go and help others experience that love. Because when Jesus was on the cross, he was cut off. He was circumcised, he was cut off, he was separated. That's why he cried out, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? He did that so that you and I would never be separated. He took God's wrath that was stored up to be poured out on you and I, on himself. So when we look at the law, we go, yeah, that's the perfect life Christ lived. That's the life he gave to me that I might live. Knowing I'm forgiven, loving others, and serving others as Christ loved and served me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for today as we grab the elements that are before us. We know there's people here that, that have the, the secret sins. I, I do. The ones that aren't public, that are easily hidden. And, and we now confess that we've been in sin. We're wrestling with certain sins. We pray as we do that. We make a habit of that. That we would not give any room for the enemy. And there's patterns and times in our lives where maybe that's more apparent than others. We pray for those who are wrestling. We pray for those who are wondering if... It's true that they can be forgiven from all that they've done. We pray that you would reveal yourself to them in a way that as they turn from their sin and repent and turn to you, that they know that they're saved, know they're forgiven, and share that with us, that we might walk with them as we grow in relationship with you and each other. Ultimately, Lord, we know you've called us to your mission, to your purpose, and as Paul's pleading with the religious, the Jewish believers to to lay down their obedience and their works and receive your works as payment for their sin. 
We pray that we would know we're forgiven, rejoice in that. And maybe as your spirit leads us to serve in an area, serving the ministry, serving your church for your glory and our good, that you'd make that clear, Lord, how we might love and forgive as you've loved and forgiven us for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.